2: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order.
0: That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hi, this is Bruce Daisley. Thanks for listening. I said at the outset of these podcasts I was going to do between five and a million episodes. And this is episode 10, so that's good, isn't it? If you enjoy it today, please do share this episode. Whack it on your Facebook, tweet it, push it through a neighbour's letterbox, leave it as a passive-aggressive note for someone on their windscreen, gift it for the guy in the office who has BO. All sharing is appreciated. My fascination with work culture comes from the experience of, of living it and enjoying it. But increasingly, firms are using culture as a means of differentiating themselves. Often the outward projection of business cultures is an enigma or it's shrouded in misdirection. Tech companies seem to dominate our discussions on and culture. Partly, a lot of businesses have arrived out of nowhere with the mystique of a new pop star. Part of the ways that businesses present their cultures is deliberately misleading. One of the oft-reported myths of culture is 20% time at Google. Have you heard of this? The idea that millennial audiences are so desperate for meaning, for purpose, that companies need to give them time to work on their own projects. 20% time is the example of this. You're allowed to spend 20% time working on whatever you want. Well, the interesting thing about this is that I worked at Google for four years and no one once mentioned 20% time to me. I was in a commercial role, so so maybe it wasn't there. So I'd ask engineers, do you have 20% time? And they'd always laugh. They'd say, 20% time? Yeah, that's called Saturday. There was a presentation during the rounds last week by Ben Horowitz. I've tweeted it from our Twitter handle. Search for Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. He's your classic master of the universe. He's one of the founders of Andreessen Horovitz a venture capital firm that were early on Facebook, Foursquare, Twitter. His presentation about culture majored on a few points. One of them was interesting. He said, to build culture, you need, in his words, to create shocking rules. His example of this was Facebook's famous move fast and break things rule. He said the discordant nature of these these shocking rules made them appealing for people to work there. OMG, we break things here. It's, it's worth saying actually, as an aside, move fast and break things has been updated, and now without uh, without exaggeration, it's now move fast with safe infrastructure doesn't quite have the same abandon to it, does it? It's like moving from hey let's go crazy to let's go crazy, but also can we keep the noise down actually I've got work tomorrow, I might get the bill. Uber's got some of these shocking rules. For a start, Uber has a series of eight Uber competencies they expect all employees to possess. Vision, fierceness, super pumpness are amongst the list. Team members are rated on their super pumpness every year. Maybe worth asking yourself how super-pumped you are today. Probably the closest Uber has to a a Ben Horowitz-style shocking rule is always be hustling. A Guardian article last week said that there's an Uberversity where new, new hires are schooled that getting a product to market ahead of the competition, even if it's not fully ready, is the Uber way. This is what always be hustling looks like. So, how do these shocking rules explain a company's culture? Can news stories we've seen recently about Uber be explained by their culture and their attitudes? For this episode, there was only one person to ask. Brad Stone is a leading expert on US tech firms. Not only does he work at Bloomsburg in San Francisco covering tech, but he's also written two must read books on them. The Everything Stories, an in depth study of Jeff Bezos at Amazon, explains an interesting culture that revels in keeping costs low. For a long time, every desk at Amazon was a cheap door mounted on legs. meeting reflecting jeff's cerebral introverted nature starts with everyone silently reading a document for 15 minutes brad just published another work that's intriguing and timely the upstarts has him spending time with travis kalanek at uber and brian chesky at airbnb the upstarts documents how uber and airbnb navigated the challenges of creating startups that for a long time were they're on the wrong side of regulation I went to the busy broadcast floor at Bloomsburg to ask Brad about the culture of these firms. And to start, Brad told me how Jeff Bezos set about creating the culture at Amazon.
2: He he was extremely thoughtful about it, right? He wanted a high achievement culture. He looked to Microsoft across Lake Washington and thought, you know, we we, we don't ever want to be a country club or rest on our laurels. And he set early in the company's history a set of values that he evolved over the years but that that you know attracted a certain kind of employee and probably uh, ejected you know some people who weren't very well fitted and and one of the one of the values Amazon values that stands out uh, to me was there's one uh, that is with regards to what he calls social cohesion, he, he thinks that people will try to get along with each other and that that can obscure the search for kind of the truth. There's a value around kind of conflict yielding better outcomes. And so Amazon has become, you know can be an environment where people kind of bang off each other as they argue for like the greater good. That's why Amazon can be a kind of uncomfortable place to work, but but it, arguably one of the few companies that has managed to innovate at scale. You know, Uber and Airbnb are both, you know, in their first decade as as companies, and I would say, you know, less just mature culturally. In fact, in the case of Uber, perhaps a little meandering in terms of, you know, what kind of workplace culture they have and they and, and that's sustainable. You know, both of these companies have had rapid growth, right? You know, from hundreds of people to Airbnb, probably between three and 4,000, and Uber over 10,000 in just two years. So I would say probably... You know, there's a little bit of chaos that reigns at both companies. So more, more so with Uber, which doesn't have the seasoned management team that I think Airbnb has right now. And and I guess, you know, specifically
1: going into someone like Uber, we've seen Uber's been so much in the news lately and, and so many issues. But in fact, it's only by going through your book you're reminded there was the issues of 2014. There was the issues of, I mean, this sort of a laundry list of, of major PR
2: disasters. Is there something in the culture that just create those things, or is it about the space that they're in? I mean, I think that they, you know, they were not the first company to try to innovate in transportation. There there was almost a a battlefield full of bodies of companies that had sort of failed to make any headway in reforming the taxi industry um, and, and modernizing it. And it took... A kind of a rogue company coming from outside the framework of the of, of the industry, um, you know, battling the local taxi commissioners in every city that were beholden to uh, to the taxi fleets, being stubborn and pugnacious, and that's that's Travis Kalanick, the the CEO of Uber. Now he's not a gentle guy. He you know he he he, he can be combative. He likes to sort of hash things out by pacing around and talking in these all hour long jam sessions. And that behavior you know yielded great success, but it. Yielded yielded a lot of conflict. It yielded a kind of gunslinger mentality in a lot of places around the world that probably competitively benefited Uber, but left a little bit, of, left some conflict. And I think, you know, that's part. And, so, so the conflict and the PR disaster says you a say, sort of part and parcel of its success. For example, as I write in the book, they like went international very quickly. They opened markets all around the world. They basically empowered their local general managers to be CEOs of their industry and you needed that local decision making because every market was different and there were different enemies and you know in every in every city and they would give everyone this loose set of instructions called the playbook and, and everyone people would run their businesses similarly well that decentralization would cause problems for example they gave everyone a tool to monitor the usage of the app called god and it was called god view and that created a privacy problem when people found out about it the the local general manager and their teams were free to create their own marketing initiatives. And there was a team in France that decided that they would have a little bit of fun with talking about how you can like get paired with an attractive female driver. And that created a PR disaster. And you know, and so the lack of, you know, the lack of, of reins on these on these local offices would end up creating some problems. So it's it's it may the market may have required it. In fact, Lyft tried to expand. In a much more centralized way, and probably lost a little bit of strategic ground because they were trying to manage everything. They didn't want to make the investment in people on the ground, and ultimately they had to kind of bow to the to the mechanics of of the industry. Um, so, you know, perhaps part and parcel with their approach, um, and and maybe some unintended consequences as well. Because you end up across.
1: I really enjoy the episodes, but across the, um, the Amazon book as well, you end up asking yourself, I ended up asking myself the question, does a company become its leader? Mm-hmm. In, and you can definitely see it in the Amazon case. Yeah. You know, meetings start with 30 minutes reading a document. It's quite thoughtful that everyone has this sort of emblematic desk made from a door to demonstrate that right. it's a frugal organization. The organization reflects the leader. Is that as fully the case when it comes to
2: Uber or comes to Airbnb? Yeah, I think it's probably different for every company. I think in these three cases, we're, we're dealing with larger-than-life CEOs that probably do kind of kind of uh, project project their personalities onto the organization. Certainly true with Amazon. Like I describe Amazon and the Everything Store as scaffolding built around Jeff Bezos' brain. And all of the mechanics and customs of that company are designed... To take advantage of uh, to maximize Jeff's skills and his brilliance, and to and to take advantage of how he best processes information. Reading a, a six-page narrative at the start of every meeting is not how probably normal people would would. Uh, engage in a, in a productive meeting, but, it's, but it has emanated because, you know, it's how Jeff prefers to do things. You know, these two operating review s- sessions during the year that Amazon has, it's maximizing his influence so he can touch every part of the business at least twice a year. Um, you know, no, no one-on-one meetings with direct reports. Again, like, putting a lot of people in the room with him as much as possible. Uh, it's certainly true in the case of Amazon that you have a, a larger-than-life personality who is is has guided the culture, and he has reinforced the values of that company over and over. The door desks, as you say, and, and to all his kind of communications with the company reinforce the values. Of- Frugality and, and a customer customer first mentality. Yeah, with Uber, it's 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 the same way. Some of Travis's quirks like the jam sessions and, and whatnot uh, stem from him, how he processes information. With Airbnb, it might be a little different because you have three strong founders, and you know, two of them are designers. I think that design sensibility infuses the company, but it comes from Brian and Joe Gebbia. You know, and, and frankly, like you know, you've got a very strong CFO in Lawrence Tosi from the Blackstone group, who I think has brought a little bit of professional to that organization, almost like Anthony Noto at the Twitter, you know, kind of a Wall Street mentality to get was what was probably a kind of freewheeling, uh, maybe sort of like uh, whimsical culture where, you know, they would celebrate the birthdays of the dogs, you know, that they brought to work. And 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 he, he's matured and professionalized the organization. And one of the things that I wondered whether through all of these stories, we'd seen
1: sort of the growing up of the internet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to some extent, some of the stuff that you talk about this the opportunity that's presented by technology is this wide uh, wide-eyed and wondrous thing it's it's all opportunity and then what we find later on is that things go wrong. So Airbnb, you you, uh, highlight a couple of examples where Airbnb didn't anticipate PR disasters. Someone's home gets trashed. Uh, Another person dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. Someone else uh, illustrates that actually Airbnb is reinforcing, the, the hosts are reinforcing some of the racial issues that maybe had existed previously. And it was sort of like as the
2: internet was growing up that optimism was was running aground is is there a degree of truth in that the first the first couple of generations of internet companies could you know could could exist in isolation right they impacted the world but you know they didn't have to deal with lobbyists or politicians in in some cases for decades you know after they were founded and so you know these companies obviously encountered the real world and the, and the and the messiness of it very early on. I think they're both marketplace businesses. And you know if you look at eBay, um, you know marketplace business once you get that flywheel going, it's enormously it's enormously powerful. When I think back, you know eBay is like the canonical marketplace, and you know and and I think back. You know they started to run into problems with their suppliers uh the unhappiness of their suppliers um but that was like 10 good years into into it and and again you know it was mark online marketplaces were new there wasn't a lot of like built-up knowledge about their mechanics you know now we're everyone's a lot savvier about about it and i feel like you know The drivers on Uber, the hosts on Airbnb, they've been a lot more vocal much earlier on about, you know, kind of their rights and pushing back at the company. Airbnb has done a much better job in cultivating their hosts and creating a community. You you just need to get into the back of an Uber to know that, you know, the driver has very strong opinions and in some cases like feels like an indentured servant. So I don't know, yeah, the age of these companies being able to sort of stay within the confines of Silicon Valley and ignore the kind of tumult that they're kind of, you know, creating around the world are are over. Like these companies had to engage very early on, not only in the political process, but in like they had to deal with the consequences of what, you know, of of the, the economic changes that they were creating in their industries.
1: You talk about something which is Travis's rule, which is basically—I mean—is it worth you describing that? Yeah. And I wonder what impact Travis's rule has yeah. on how the company then ends up behaving in the culture it creates.
2: Yeah. So Travis's laws—I define it in the book—is I'll try—I'll try to recite it from memory. It's—it's it's any serv- any company, or that, that's offering a service that's markedly better than the status quo. Uh, in a place where the politicians or the lawmakers are reasonably accountable to the people. If the people love that service, they will kind of turn out to support it, and the politicians will have no choice but to basically legalize it. And so the idea is if you're a sort of sympathetic upstart and people love your service, as ambiguous as the law is, you know, you can get it changed and, and have a good outcome. And I think that was the playbook in the early years of Uber. The difference is, is that they are the status quo now. You know, the Travis's law worked in the early years when you had they were po- posing as a fresh alternative to a, a kind of regulation encrusted taxi industry. I mean, here in London, you know, you had black cabs, you had a, you had mini cabs, you could hail one, you could prearrange another the black cabs fought credit cards for years. And when they had them, they wrapped them up in tape because they didn't want to pay the fees, right? I remember that. And so they weren't very accountable to the people and they fought any initiative to put more cards on the street because they didn't want the competition. So, you know, Uber came along presented, you know, an economic option for people and maybe the only option in neighborhoods that weren't well served by one of the other categories. And people voted, you know, with their tweets, you know, or or with their emails and said, we want this in our city. You know, Uber rode that wave of kind of populist support. The difference now is it's like a $70 billion company. We think when we, you know, nobody remembers that only five years ago, their taxi options were limited. It's like, you know, Uber is the status quo and it's not that sympathetic anymore.
1: Post your free
2: job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uber is the status quo now, and it's seen as sort of a heavy weight, and, you know, and it's not presenting an alternative anymore. It is, it, is, it is a primary option in a lot of cities. So, And the guest question I had was, did Travis's law,
1: and the fact that it seemed to be enacted and true for so long, did it... F- Create this bravado culture. Oh, that interesting. Effectively, you know, the bombast came from yeah. every time we tried something, every time we pushed at a door and we pushed hard enough, the door opened. And so did that create sort of a cultural bombast? Yeah. A, a self-belief that maybe
2: well, is Well, I think I think it reinforced maybe the natural arrogance of the of the CEO and the company that that they were, you know, that they were delivering kind of, you know, that they were on God's mission, you know, to reform the taxi industry. And you know, when you look at some of the kind of scandals that have erupted around, like, a tool called um, Grayball, right? That they were, you know, purposely, like, avoiding the taxi commissioners and their and their inspectors in every city. You know, that came from a belief that, like, you know, that these guys were, you know, they believed that these guys were backwards-looking and protecting an incumbent industry and weren't out for the best interests of customers. You know, that, that may have been true. That was true in a lot of cities. Um, and, I yeah, I think it helped that, like, you know, that they were always secure in the fact that, you know... If push came to shove, they could get a couple of thousand, you know, customers to go and and uh, bury, you know, the city council people with uh, with emails and support. Um, so yeah, I think it added to their to their arrogance. I saw something this morning, um, which was
1: a report, which was basically saying that uh, recruiters increasingly are looking at organisations like Uber and asking candidates how their cultures reflect on the candidate. And it was just an interesting thing because you effectively end up then, with rather than these places being destination employers that may be
2: like high turnover places
1: or, or just you know i, I think the, the thing i read today was that the value always be hustling might be seen as really appealing internally
2: but externally people are worried about what that what the baggage that candidate comes with i see so like they're the they, they might be more reticent to hire somebody yeah. from uber yeah. um well, it's interesting, um, you know, and it's funny because I've heard I've heard that occasionally with with regards to Amazon that um, the experience can be so uh, impactful that some companies might shy away. Um, yeah, where the 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 a culture of a company could could like imp, imp, affect a person. So, yeah, always be hustling or this idea that like conflict will yield the best outcome. Yeah, I, I can see how that that might you know that might have an impact on someone and a and a culture that is really oriented more towards collaboration and consensus seeking um, you know that, that kind of person might not fit in is that one of the values conflict will lead to the best outcome I think I think yeah we, we, we could pull up uber's uh, uber's uh, values it's it's in the book and I, I think that it, that's it's similar to, to one of those ones at Amazon where you know where like this idea and I know that Jeff Bezos believed pretty strongly in this that like People naturally seek a consensus. It's just like a human orientation. And that can be destructive if if what you're doing is trying to find a kind of unpopular, ferret out a sort of unpopular truth. And just, I guess, final question, really. It it appears
1: in these organizations that their outward embodiment is very much a a reflection of their culture. Or it seems that culture and the brand become so amorphous to an extent. And I just wonder how true you think that is. Can you have a very different brand externally to, to your culture internally? Or where do you see that as being the case
2: and where do you see that not being the case? I guess Amazon less so, right? Do, do you I see, think you're do you right. See I think, think they're part and parcel of the same thing. I mean, Amazon's culture reinforces a customer first mentality, right? Like frugality is all about, is all about like devoting your, your resources, saving your money for, to, to pass along to customers in the form of lower prices and, and better deals. The things we've observed about uh, Uber, So the things we've said,
1: conflict produces better outcomes. we be hustling produces this urgent bombast this machismo which actually now we're seeing reflected in the brand right you know people are seeing i I met a non-profit yesterday and i was talking to them i said you know would you ever partner with the likes of uber and she said we'd never touch uber because the way the brand's perceived so you know this i don't want to use the word toxicity but you know the the sort of the, the negative perceptions of that aggression, of that bombast, end up being reflected. And I just wonder if, you know, those things that you tolerate internally, so the things we're seeing about, the things they tolerated internally,
2: are now actually being manifested as their brand. Okay, so I, I have a couple of thoughts. When you look at all the first generation internet companies, you know, Amazon is the only one that continues to innovate at scale. Like there, there's a definitely a natural tendency of any company to, toward inertia, right? These are this is like, you know, this is it's probably human nature, it probably has to do with, la- you know, when, when an equity kind of slows down and the kind of people you attract, um, or just the expectations of the public market and so I think a certain kind of like relentlessness, you know, it turns out to be a good thing, we've seen that with Amazon it, it alone, among that first generation internet companies, kind of continues to grow and innovate at scale um, you know, then you go to, to, to uh, a newer company like Uber um, we, in that recent Video of Travis in the back of, a, of an Uber uh, talking to two friends, and then he gets into an argument with uh, the driver. Some of uh, the listeners probably saw that video. He says at the beginning of that video, one of his friends says, "I hear you're, you guys are having a hard year," and he says, "I try to make every year a hard year," and it's revealing. Like I think he has intuited the lesson of Amazon, which is you want to make people a little bit uncomfortable, right? You want to light a fire under your people; otherwise, you're going to be you're going to be kind of sliding toward inertia, you know. Yeah, the question is when when you're moving so fast and um, uh, you haven't like set up the proper guardrails of like a professional human resource or human resources organization, which has obviously been a problem at Uber. You have these like terrible anecdotes, like the sexual harassment ob- uh, allegations, and it begins to impact your brand. You know, you start kind of scaring your not only your employees but the outside world, and um, and so you know you're kind of caught between two ends of the spectrum. One not not wanting to slow down. Um, you know, Uber's still a private company. It can't slow down. It's got an existential dilemmas in the form of like driverless cars and competition all around the world. But at the same time, Um, you know, you you end up like breaking so many eggs that, uh, you know, you ruin the meal. And so there has to be a median, a medium, and I'm not sure Uber has found that yet. Um, And I think the lessons of these PR disasters is that perhaps they've been moving a little too quickly or fighting inertia a little too hard uh, with, with, with some negative results.
1: Fascinating. Thank you, Brad. Thank you for joining me. I'm super pumped you made it to the end. Next week, we've got something amazing that combines work culture, One Direction, and technology. I honestly can't wait. Always keen to hear your views. Do me a tweet.
2: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes.